If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Oh yeah, we are walking on sunshine today here in Hamilton, Ontario. It is a beautiful day out there. It is gorgeous. 27 degrees here at the corner of Longwood and Main, downtown Hamilton. It is it is extravagantly beautiful out there right now. So what am I doing in here? <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people are saying who are at home or in the office or in their cars. What am I doing here? Well, you know what? We'll have more of it. We'll have more. Summer's coming. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. This is not why Scott Thompson is off, far as I know. This is not simply Scott Thompson throwing on the leopard skin Speedo and reclining in the backyard to tan up to get an early start on the Rays. <laughs> At least, I don't know that that's the reason he's off. I'm hoping and praying that's not what is going on. For him, for his neighbors, for his children, <laughs> for, for the sake of all humanity, really. Ah, yeah, it is lovely out there, though. Um, yeah, welcome to the show. Glad you're along. We've got tons to get to today. Tons to get to. Let me tell you what's coming up. We are going to be chatting about something that is a very controversial issue, especially in this city right now, grade inflation. If you have a kid in high school, a particular high school in this city, especially, you will want to be sticking around. Grade inflation, University of Waterloo has a formula they use to determine which schools are plumping up graduation marks by the most to get their kids, I guess, into university. Well, this is their thing, but there is a Hamilton school that leads all of Ontario with the biggest inflationary grade bump. We'll talk about that and what this means uh, this hour. The Jays opened their schedule yesterday, as you know, the home opener in the brand new, well, not brand new, the newly renovated $300 million renovation. That, that's, that's quite a home renovation. Uh, Rogers Center. We'll be chatting about that and some of the things that are new there and that if you're going to a game, you can see. And we'll also probably, we're going to probably talk about one of the things that might get you to a game. They have a new cheaper ticket that, uh, boy, I think this is, of all the things they're doing, I think this one might be the brightest. Well, we'll talk about that this hour. Uh, next hour, there is a new poll. Canadians are feeling less and less safe, way less safe now than they were before the COVID pandemic. And it's got nothing to do with viruses or mask wearing or anything. This is, this is a crime and punishment and law issue. Canadians feeling not safe in their country. We'll, uh, we'll talk to the head of Leger that did the poll about that one. Really interesting one. This is something we're going to talk about next hour. I have never heard of this before. I may be the only person who's never heard of this before, but I hadn't. And so I figure there may be some other ones. Baby boxes. Are you familiar with baby boxes? It's something that there are apparently a few of them, a very few in Canada, it's something that is being used more and more and more in the United States, kind of a throwback to a once upon a time thing where mothers, single mothers could drop off their unwanted babies at a convent or at a church or a hospital. Well, it's a new modern version of this to try and prevent 
People who, for whatever reason, do not want to keep their newborn babies, they can drop them off anonymously and they can be cared for. They're not just abandoning them in the woods or, or you know, in some tragic decision killing the child. It's, it's, it's a really interesting idea. We're going to talk to the woman who is behind the program that's in the States and some of the controversy that is around it because not everybody is a fan of this. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, you heard on the news from Jen that uh, the Jugmeet Singh is in town today. We'll be catching up with him just after five o'clock. He's uh, doing the circuit about the new dental plan that has been passed by the Liberal government at the urging slash forcing of the NDP. We'll uh, we'll talk to Jugmeet Singh about that one. Uh, a, a Hamilton kid, I, this is a story that I saw on Twitter. We wanted to get the lawyer on it. A 16-year-old in Hamilton has apparently been ticketed by Hamilton police for riding his bicycle on the sidewalk. To which some say, about darn time. And to others will say, what in the world are the police doing ticketing a 16-year-old for riding his bicycle on the sidewalk? You can, you can text me right now. 905-645-3221. Tell me where you, without even hearing the lawyer yet, initially, where you stand on the, yes, we should ticket people who ride their bicycles improperly, or come on, we have bigger fish to fry, don't we? Love to hear from you on that one. And, and later, the very end of the show, we'll be chatting with Don Robertson, who uh, his Dundas Real McCoys will be hosting the Allen Cup beginning on Monday, the championship of Canadian senior hockey. Uh, it's been here before, but it's been, boy, it's been a struggle to get it back with COVID and everything else. So the uh, the championship will be played all week with the final a week from Saturday at the JL Greitmeyer Arena. Uh, your Twitter poll today, love for you to go on Twitter and cast a vote on this one. Ontario will offer an ultra-low overnight hydro rate starting May the 1st. But people who choose that rate will be charged a higher on-peak rate. So you get the cheaper one at night, but you're going to pay more during the day. Are you going to opt in for that rate or stick with what you got? This is like, let's make a deal. I'll take what's behind door number one. No, no, I don't like door number one. Uh, What are you going to do? Are you going to go with the cheaper at night, but more expensive during the day? Or keep it going as it is? I'll tell you who's going to take, I would think, the more, the, the cheaper at night. Anyone who already has an electric vehicle and is going to charge their car at night, I'm betting are going to say, all right, I can do this. I'll wait till 11 o'clock to do my laundry and run the dishwasher and charge my car. And I'm out of the house anyway, so I just won't use any electricity during the day. But let us know. Go to Twitter and uh, look for 900CHML and cast your vote there. Lots coming up right after this. Stay with us. Toronto Star had a fascinating, fascinating piece in the paper, very long read about grade inflation the other day. Grade inflation, and this comes from, this stems from the University of Waterloo. The University of Waterloo has something it calls the adjustment factor. And this is not something it announces or that it trumpets. It actually got out because of a freedom of information request. But what it does basically, it looks at grades of kids in high school, at every high school, different high schools, and the grades that they apply to to Waterloo with So let's say the number here is 94. So applicants to Waterloo get 94, let's say. And then what are the grades at the end of first year of university? What's that difference? And they're saying, essentially, this is a, we adjust this. And often the students that, some of the students have very, very, very large gaps. 
They call that the great inflation, that maybe grades were given a little easier or who knows what. Well, why this story is of particular interest around here is that the number one school, according to the Star's reporting, the number one school on University of Waterloo's adjustment factor this year, Ancaster High School, had a grade adjustment of 21.4, meaning if you had a 94% average going into Waterloo, that worked out to an equivalent of a 72.6. Hmm. Paul Bennett is the director and lead researcher at Schoolhouse Consulting. He is he is Canada's leading educational expert, and we, we love having him on to talk about these things. Paul, thanks for the time today. Great to be with you, Scott. This is, look, I, I don't know, um, I don't even know where to go with this, because I don't know if this is a... Uh, a school problem, if this is a board problem, if this is just unique to a particular year or two, or how do we, what do we read into this? It's a province-wide problem in Ontario, but it also extends across the English-speaking world. But let's just focus on Ontario. We now have seven years of results from the University of Waterloo Engineering, where they screen students, and we have 62 schools were listed for 2022. I counted about 94 or 95 that have been listed over the last seven years. So we have seven years of data on high schools, and it's it's credible data because it's based on their best six subjects, which they present to the universities on their university transcripts. And it includes uh, math and science. It must include English and an additional subject. So it includes all six of their subjects. So it's credible. So if, uh, for example, from Ancaster, as you mentioned, you were presented with, you presented a 94, which, by the way, is about the average that you would present for a university of that or program of that caliber. You're right. You would be uh, credited with about a 73. Now, um, this be, being fair here, if you went to uh, Hamilton District uh, Christian Academy, believe it or not, in Ancaster, uh, they've only qualified once for the ranking, but the adjustment factor was 12.3 in 2019, which means that their marks are harder and more substa- substantial. And at the end of first year of engineering, they stand up better. So is this... So how do we get here? Like, is this something where, whether it's Ancaster or any of the other schools on the list, is this schools and teachers that are under pressure to give higher marks so more kids get into university? Or is there something else going on here? Well, there are three factors right now. We have the pandemic and a lot of the marks going in in 2022 were soft. That's first of all. They're kind of not made up with as much exam component. Secondly, teachers are exhausted and uh, probably going through um, a lot of algorithms themselves and um, everyone's tired and they're under a lot of pressure uh, to actually give kids what they previously would have gotten. And I think that the third thing is that the university cutoff uh, averages keep jumping up. And so there's a tendency for, say, engineering, you know, every admissions officer, every uh, guidance counselor in every high school knows you're not getting in unless you have 94 into, say, um, uh, Waterloo uh, Engineering. What we've learned, though, is that this is not new. It goes back over 30 years. I myself have participated in a lot of these discussions over the years. 
you probably noticed in the article it said that at the time in the early 90s I was the academic um, vice principal of Upper Canada College and by the way it, it appeared on the list for the first time with uh, a 19.4 percent uh, rating which will cause tremendous um, turmoil yeah. in that community. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you, I mean, it, the difficulty then is what to do about this, because if all of a sudden all these schools were to say, you know what, we've just got to grade way, 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 way harder, then all of a sudden, yeah, you know what, in, they may be more accurate, but Waterloo still, and probably other universities, I'm assuming some of them might have these now uh, adjustment grades. And now if all of a sudden a student in Ancaster gets a 78 instead of a 94, well, you factor in the adjustment, and for at least a few years anyway, nobody's getting into Waterloo. We've got uh, three levels to be considered. They all need to work together. If you're going to solve this problem, it's going to involve the province, which is going to state that the marks need to be toughened up and that they don't approve of mark inflation, and no longer are they going to trumpet percentages on graduation. That's number one. Number two, the universities have to be honest. They're looking to fill spaces, and they really haven't spent enough time uh, working out solutions. It's not good enough to rely on an algorithm. And thirdly, the high schools, particularly the teachers in the graduating years, they have to be uh, encouraged to be firmer with their evaluations. But I, I think the answer, we're running out of space. <laughs> if you, There's so many students from 85 to 95 now that uh, there isn't much more room for this scale. So we're going we're gonna to have to look at a different way of, uh, of uh, marking and a different evaluation system. It's coming very fast. But, okay, we're, we're really short on time, but if a teacher all of a sudden was to grade much harder, though, and that teacher's grades then go down in their classroom, so the students appear to have less achievement, and fewer students then go from that class into university, is that teacher not going to be in some kind of trouble or looked at very negatively by the school or the board? It's a catch-22, as you've illustrated. I don't think you're going to find too many brave souls willing to do that. I will say this, though, um, that you're only ranked if you have 10 students who are admitted to engineering at okay. the University of Waterloo. So it's a, it's a very select group we're talking about. But I'm, I'm arguing it's widespread. It's massive. It's even more exaggerated in humanities and social sciences and definitely in general arts. Right, where you don't have, I mean, math has, math has actual answers to questions where some of these other things, it can almost be whatever you want it to be. Oh, what we've got is wild irregularities and incredible distortions uh, as students proceed through high school. And, um, you know, that's why no one wants to be weighed into it. It's a, it's a very, it's what is called in education, a wicked problem. Mm. It's going to take a lot of energy to sort this one out. Paul, we have 20 seconds, but um, what about the idea then of Canada going to something like they have in the States with an SAT so that, you know what, it's all a level playing field for people applying for universities? I favor university admissions tests administered by these selective programs so that they have a little bit more say in it. I think we need to get the applicants to uh, pay a fee to uh, write those admissions tests, and I think we will over time see the end of this. And remember, we're only going to be, if it was university admission test, it would only be those selected students that are going to right. those 
more highly in-demand programs. That is Paul Bennett, Director and Lead Researcher at Schoolhouse Consulting. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Oh, you're welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Tony is up. Tony, how are you? Oh, not too bad. How's yourself? I'm doing great, thanks. What do you think, Tony? I, I'm old enough to know years ago that uh, the, the schools, the teachers, were told they could not fail a student yep. because it would be emotionally distraught on a child. Yep. Now, I forced the school to hold one of my children back because she was having trouble with hearing and various reasons, and she was, and she was competing with her sister in the same grade. And I said, no, you have to do something about it. So what they did, they just put the kid in there, and they had her doing something else because she was good at art, so, so they had her doing something else. She wasn't even in the class half the time. She was out in the hallway drawing pictures or something like that. And she did manage to get into college and that kind of stuff. But it, it's so much today, everybody thinks they're entitled to do this yeah. and they're entitled to do that. Tony, listen, I got to run, but I, I thank you for the call. You're, it's a great point because, and uh, Tony, thank you. I got to run. Okay. Um, it's a great point, and here's why because Tony allowed a school. By saying it's okay, he, he got them off the hook by saying you can do something with my kid because they're not ready. There's a lot of parents that would be pushing the other direction. We got to go, but Will, you wanted to get, jump in here really quickly. What did you have to say? I uh, kind of wanted to touch on how I, I had great teachers in high school. I went to a really great in high school, Westmount Wildcats represent. I I kind of wish that um, you know, I, I'm more of an artsy kind of guy. I really wish that my my math and my computer science teachers had pushed me a little harder and not just been like, okay, well, if you do this and that, we'll get you like that, that little by the, the, the skin of your teeth passing mark. I kind of wish that they had just hammered into me. Come on. You can do it. You're a bright well, kid. I know it. And what um, what will, I mean, as I say, this is a, it's a fascinating story. You can read it at the Toronto Star, the star.com. You can read it at the spec.com. Uh, it is well worth a read, especially if you have kids in this city now who are in high school. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Welcome back to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Yesterday, as, as I hope you know this, I mean, there are certain days on the calendar, not, not numbered days, but moments on the calendar that everybody should know about. One of them is opening home opener of the baseball season because that is the... That is the sign that spring has arrived. Forget what it's like outside, which is lovely. Opening day at home. Home opener is the first day of spring. A guy who was down there yesterday in Toronto at the Rogers Center, the new Rogers Center, Mike Wilner, who's a baseball columnist with the Toronto Star, host of the Deep Left Field podcast, joins me now. Mike, how are you? I'm swell, Scott. How are you? I am great. The, the buzz and the excitement and the warm fuzzies of opening day still lingering. I mean, it was it was a fun day. It was a great game. It was very cool to see uh, the new configuration of the ballpark. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's like you said, the first day of spring, right? And now you know, today it's gorgeous outside. Uh, and if the roof was ready, they could definitely open it for tonight's game. But uh, but yeah, hopefully all the all the gross winter is behind us, uh-huh. and off we go. 
Well, I, you know, you mentioned the thing. We, we can talk baseball all summer long, and, and we will. But I, I want to talk in the time we have today mostly about the stuff that is down there. Because that's what I think a lot of people were very curious to see yesterday was what the new, I think it's $300 million renovation to Rogers Center, what, what that looks like. What was your impression? I mean, I did not wander the concourses much. I didn't go up to the 500 level to see those new fan uh, deck zones, whatever they're calling them. Um, and I didn't uh, go into the, the seats in the outfield behind the bullpens, which I'm excited to do at some point. You know, last night was not the, the time for me to do that. Um, I'm more excited about the new dimensions of the field and how things play and the shorter wall in, in center. And, you know, I had, uh, I had Kevin Kiermaier on, on my podcast when he signed with the Jays back in December. And we talked about how the fence is going to be lower and there'll be an opportunity for him to get up and over and take a home run or, or two away. Uh, never expected it to be in the second, second inning, the first inning. Game, right? Yeah. That was, that was crazy. Um, so that, and the, 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 Weird bounces off the wall, which we didn't see any of last night. But, you know, Alejandro Kirk's double off wall in right center is probably a fly ball out last year. Bo Bichette's home run is is definitely a fly ball out last year. Um, some of the some of the new things. I mean, I think there are some triples there now, but we, we haven't seen that yet. But that's that's the stuff I'm the most excited about. Uh, Kevin Kiermaier, I mean, you mentioned his name. Talk about a guy, and we'll get back to the park in a sec. Talk about a guy who I think Blue Jay fans were honestly quite sick and tired of because of the damage he did to them over the years. Uh, but, I mean, how to turn yourself into an absolute fan favorite in two innings. I mean, that that's there's the way, there's your first impression for a, for a guy on his new team at home. Yeah, right? I mean, take a home run away and then hit a home run a few innings later. It's <laughs> Uh, Kevin Kiermaier is a guy that you absolutely hate when he's not on your team and that you absolutely love when he is, you know, uh, he's, he's someone who changes the game just by virtue of playing in it. Uh, and, and I, you know, a couple of years ago, I looked back at the Tampa Bay Rays record when he plays and when he doesn't. And the difference was like stark. They were barely a 500 team when he was out of the lineup and like a 700 team when he was is because he does so many things that don't show up in the box score. And occasionally he does things that do that help a team win. And, you know, as long as he stays healthy, he is a phenomenal addition to this team. Yeah. The Tampa Bay is doing okay without him this year so far. I mean, they, they are, uh, they are going to go undefeated uh, this year, apparently. So that's uh, we'll see. Um, one of the one of the things, and it really isn't to do with the park per se, but it's a new thing this year. And I got to tell you, I love this. Uh, remind me back in the day, back in the eighties, there was the two dollar tickets from what was it from Dominion or Loblaws? One dollar was it? One dollar. It started at the general mission tickets from Dominion. Yeah, it became two dollars. All right. Yeah, you could go oh. sit in the in the bleachers, which. I mean, some of them you you would only have a passing acquaintance to the game. <laughs> yeah, that's that right. Was going they on. were in the art. They but were yeah. in the uh, the the Conklin amusement park area of the X. But that's right. um, exactly. but the the fact is, is, and I know times have changed, and twenty dollars is not one dollar. But I got to tell you, the idea that there is now a twenty dollar pass to just get into the park and you don't have a seat, but you get to be in there 
forget all the other stuff that they did with the renovations. To me, that might be the smartest thing they've done all year as far as fan interaction. They're trying to make it into a downtown space, right? Where, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a baseball fan to go. They want you to go to the bars. They, you know, um, so I think that if you consider it like just to be a $20 cover, right? Um, you go in somewhere and, you know, most nights you'll get a seat. Um, yeah. So yeah, think, yeah, that's true. You know, I don't think that's a major concern. But, but yeah, just to go and to, if you want to go to the bar on the 500 level, if you want to hang out on those landings over the bullpen, um, there, there are great spaces to go where you don't need a seat. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll be on your feet for two and a half hours now instead of three and a half with the new rules. I, I, I agree with you. It's a great idea. I mean, they did, you know, it was only a few years ago that they had the $81, season pass to sit up in the 500 level on those. I had one of those. Yeah, we we did that one year. I think I went to three games, but it was, hey, it was okay. It was still fun. It was nice to say I had a season ticket. Yeah, 27 bucks a game. It's not so bad (laughs) if you only go three times. Uh, But but yeah, having a a $20 cover to get into three or four bars plus, hey, there's a baseball game too. It's not a bad idea at all. How long is it going to be? So one of the things I also saw was, and you you alluded to it, is the new bullpen, the visitor's bullpen is right by the fans. I mean, the fans are right there. We saw on opening day, I think, of the season or the second day of the year, Anthony Rendon get into it with a fan. How long till we have a situation where some fan who maybe has enjoyed the bars a little too much really gets into it with an opposing player who's warming up or a bullpen catcher or something? I, I think it's inevitable it's going to happen this year. With the proxy, I heard that. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I did hear that a fan threw a beer at a uh, an opposing reliever last night. In the that didn't take so, long. Um, yeah, it didn't take long. But op- the opener is generally the drunkest and the rowdiest that the fans get until the playoffs. Of course, um, the fans are equally right on top of the home bullpen. So you know, if they're a little upset, then uh, then it could go either way. But uh, hopefully, security will be. Um, extra tight down there. Uh, I heard a story today, again, not 100% sure about this, that uh, fans in those sections, uh, it's a one strike and you're out. Um, so hopefully, like, it should be no, there, there shouldn't be any strikes, um, but uh, it should be as soon as you do something. Uh, but I, I was told that apparently fans get a one strike warning for abusive behavior before they get tossed out. But I'm sure if you throw something or something like that, you'll be thrown out immediately. Uh, but, I, you know, part of it is that I think they want the bullpen to be sort of a hostile place yep, for yep. the visitors and yep. an intimidating place like it is at Yankee Stadium and, and some other places, though. Again, fans are a lot closer here than they are anywhere else except for uh, Seattle. Um, but hopefully, uh, hopefully, it's a little under control. Physical we, won't be tolerated. We we have seen uh, that throwing a can of beer at Rogers Center might not just get you kicked out; it might land you on the front page of a newspaper and cost you your job, and on and on and on. If we remember that yeah. story, uh, Mike Wilner, the host of Deep Left Field Podcast, you can find that anywhere you look, and baseball columnist with the Toronto Star. Thanks for doing this. Oh, anytime. Happy to do it. There is, there are new numbers out. There was a poll that was done by Leger. 
looking at people's comfort level with their, well, their safety level, how they feel about public safety in their own community. Do they feel safe? And this is, this is comparing it primarily to prior to COVID. Now, I mean, obviously, it seems like a, 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 an interesting time to do this because we've had this period where we all essentially went away. So what do we remember about how we felt going out in public before COVID when life was normal? Skip over the three years when nobody was out and everything was different. Now, what do we think now? Do we feel like we are safe in our communities? Well, the answer is not really. Nearly two-thirds of those, and you heard this on the news just a few minutes ago, nearly two-thirds of the people who took the survey say things are worse. 32% say crime and violence has gotten much worse. 32% say it's a little worse. A quarter of the respondents said the situation hasn't changed. 8% didn't know. I've always wondered in polls, how do you not know? But anyway, it's a question. Do you feel safer or not? I don't know. That's a weird answer. Anyway, and 2%, 2% say the situation is a little better. Andrew Enns is the Executive Vice President in Central Canada for Leger. He joins us now. Andrew, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on your program. Hey, so that means you're feeling safe in your community? <laughs> Well, I'm feeling safe in my office, 27 floors up. How about that? <laughs> That's a, that seems really reasonably safe. This is look. This is a really interesting poll. And again, just before you came on, because we, you do have that gap between COVID, where you know it's not. Uh, just a straight line of a chronology. We have a moment before we sort of have that gap, and now we're back and asking people. I'm not really surprised that people feel less safe. The question I kind of have is, is it just a, the fact that life is now back to a normal that is not necessarily normal, or are things really not as safe as they once were? Well, I think, I think uh, there's a couple of points that I'll, I'll make to your, uh, to your question, which is a good one. Um, I, I think our poll is capturing how people feel, what their perception is. And I think there's a, and, and I think that perception is, is uh, in part uh, determined a bit by your, you know, your surroundings and, and maybe, um, you know, the fact that uh, you're, you've been going downtown in some larger urban centers and you're, you know, maybe, you know, th- you're seeing things that you hadn't, you, you don't recall seeing before the pandemic or, uh, you know, in your, so there's, there's this visual thing that I think you're experiencing. I also think that people's perceptions are being determined by some of, some of the media conversation and some of the news and some of the things that are going on in some cities that um, I think have really sort of, in some respects, have, have shocked us mm. in terms of the some of the nature of some violence that that's occurred. And you know, in your uh, you know, not far from from where you are in, in Toronto, I mean, they're they're grappling with some some uh, some real challenges in terms of uh, what's happening on so, their their public transit. And but but you can go to almost any uh, major Canadian city, and there's been some of these instances. So I think those two factors affect our perception of what what's happening out there but i think that then you need to take a stop for a second and i think it's the the criminologists and the you know the police chiefs that may weigh in and actually tell us like what is going on Mm -hmm. um because sometimes those don't always align 
um, you know, like maybe, you know, you may have a criminologist or a police chief come on and say, well, look, actually, violent crime hasn't changed much as a percentage of sort of the, uh, you know, what goes on per 100,000 people. Yeah. And and, I, and when I said, no, and when, yeah, when I was saying beforehand about that, that gap in COVID and you sort of allude to it, we've been, you say up on the 26th or 27th floor, we've been in a safe cocoon in our homes for three yeah. years for a lot of people. And so that's why I kind of, this doesn't really surprise me because now that we ventured out again, we see stuff that we haven't necessarily seen for three years. It may have been exactly the same as what it was in 2019, but we haven't seen it for a while. So it seems worse. Yeah, you know, and, and for sure, I think there is a there is a little bit, uh, you know, to that. I think particularly when when people, uh, you know, in the you know, say six months ago when they started venturing uh, into the office and perhaps downtown into some of these areas, there weren't a lot of people, um, and I think that also uh, is a bit unnerving because it's that you know it's a bit of a shock. Like you know, if you cast your mind back pre-COVID. Streets were full of people, yep, yep. Um, and now when you go down downtown, and I'll, I'll speak just from my my personal experience. I'm I'm located in Winnipeg a lot of the times, and and um, you know the the lack of uh, the lack of foot traffic and people downtown means you see a lot of other activity that you wouldn't necessarily maybe uh, pick up on uh, if things were, you know, 100%. And I think that's a bit of that struggle too. And that, that affects our perceptions. Mm. Uh, we got to run in a second here, but I wonder what this means to politicians, a poll like this, and, and probably one poll won't mean a whole lot necessarily, but you know, we are in the middle of a debate in a lot of places about defunding police or re, or moving money from police to social services or whatever else. I'm not sure that if there is a, if two thirds of the public is saying, I'm not feeling safe, I'm not sure how politicians interpret that and what they would do with that as far as pursuing yeah. something like that. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, short answer very cautiously. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we asked in our poll, uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, but we did ask, you know, what what would be some things that might make make you feel safer? And I will say that, uh, you know, look, the, the traditional tougher penalties, longer sentences, more police officers pops up pretty high in the list. But I will say what, what has changed, I think, Scott, it's worth, and politicians are, are, are uh, you know, worth noting this, is that there is there is a very strong desire and a connection now to the notion that hey look there's some of these root causes are mental illnesses that are that are not being treated properly some of these root causes are addictions and where people can't find uh, the space the the help they need and you're seeing those kind of uh, those kind of arguments and those kind of uh, solutions popping up much higher than I would say would have been a decade ago. And I think that's if there's a lesson for politicians, it's really it's it's not one or the other. It's not defund the police and let's just do the social side. It's really let's take a much more holistic approach to this and and uh, bad guys, let's put them behind bars and keep them there. But I think we can do a lot of work from 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 preventing crime from even happening if we can get ahead of some of the addiction and, and mental health mm. challenges. Andrew Enns of Leger, I uh, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for this. Uh, for sure, Scott. Have a good rest of your show. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I was reading something yesterday, just flipping around, and came across a story. I, I'd never heard of this. Uh, this was something entirely new to me, but as soon as I read it, I thought, 
I've got to get the person behind this on the show to talk about this, because I think this is one of the most unique ideas I've heard of. And honestly, something that seems to me anyway, is a really good idea. Not everyone agrees. We're going to talk about it a little bit. Monica Kelsey is the woman behind Safe Haven, Safe Haven Baby Boxes. Monica, first of all, Monica, thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. Why don't you explain? Uh, you'd be you're the one behind this. You'd be better at explaining it. Explain what safe haven baby boxes are. So there's been a law in America for the last 22 years where a parent can walk into any fire station, hospital or police station and hand their uh, their newborn to a worker and turn around and walk away. And they're not prosecuted and um, they're they're not penalized. And so it's called the safe haven law. And it's saved about 4,700 babies in the last 22 years, but we've also had about 2,000 babies found in dumpsters and trash cans in that same time. So you have to kind of look at why are we still having abandoned babies if there's a law on the books? And so um, I uh, was actually on a, a speaking tour in Cape Town, South Africa, when I seen a baby safe. And as a, a firefighter and medic, I knew about the safe haven law, but I had never seen anything like this. And so I brought the idea back to America started doing the research and found that a lot of these babies are being left at the doors of fire stations and hospitals. These parents want to, to save the life of their child, but they just don't want to walk in and go face to face with anyone. And so I came up with a box and, and literally it's just that it's a box that gets installed in the side of a firehouse or a hospital. And we basically cut a hole in the wall, like we're placing a window in it and we slide the baby box in. So the outside of the baby box is on the outside of the building and the inside of the baby box is on the inside of the building. And uh, it allows a parent anonymity. Nobody stands there and waits. And, and these boxes are alarm activated. The parent hears nothing, but the emergency responders, the paramedics, the firefighters all get signaled out that there's a, there's a newborn in the box and our babies are picked up right about, um, uh, we just had one a couple of days ago, uh, baby was in the box for right about two minutes and three seconds. And so that's the average time is two minutes. So it's a lot better than finding a baby in a dumpster or a trash can. We're now finding them healthy, alive in baby boxes and no one's getting prosecuted. You know, so we're not utilizing those resources for parents that really just wanted to do the right thing, but just didn't want to go face to face. I'm I'm like when I hear this, it makes all the sense in the world. And I'm kind of surprised that it had never been done before. And and maybe I shouldn't be because everything requires, a, you know, a nugget of an idea to get it started. But it, it seems to make so much sense. Well, and, you know, it's been in third world countries for multiple years. Baby boxes. This is not new. It's just new to America. And it, it's crazy because you're, you're right. This is such a simple concept. Why, why wasn't this done before? I mean, we're finding babies at the doors of these locations. Wouldn't it be safer if, if a woman placed the child in one of these boxes rather than on the ground, hoping that someone finds it? You know, these boxes will alert 911. And so the the, the fact that we didn't have these prior to me seeing one in, in Cape Town, South Africa, um, it, it's just, a, it, it, honestly, it's it's almost un, um, unheard of, you know, like. You, you I, must, as part of this, though, as doing this, you must either talk to, well, I don't know if you would have talked to people who have left their babies, because that's kind of the whole idea that you wouldn't necessarily know who left their babies. But who are the people? What What are the circumstances? Do you know? Do we have any idea generally what the circumstances are, why someone would make this decision? We actually have a lot of the parents that contact us for resources. 
and resources. After they've done this, they get in touch. Yes, yes. we okay. have. We've, 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 we've. I would probably say half of the parents reach out to us. Half of them don't, and that's their right. I mean, if they'd like, to, you know, like us to walk alongside them on their journey, then we will. If they don't, that's fine. But you know, every we've we've probably heard every situation from you know abuse, uh, domestic violence that a a, a mother was in, um, wanted to get this child away from the abuser. That's one of the cases. Um, a lot of young, um, still in high school uh, pregnancies where parent, they, they feel that their parents would be very angry and they've chosen this. So there, there's as many, you know, as many options as you think or, you know, crisis crises that that are out there is it's pretty much we've heard it. Um, what, yeah. the, are the I'm sort of interested why they would reach out, though, afterwards, because if the point of this is anonymity, are most of them simply reaching out to make sure that someone actually did find their baby? Well, you know, that's the actual the number one question that we get asked from these parents is, is my baby safe and is my baby healthy? So just checking, I've done this. I just want to make sure someone found out. Yeah, that's that's the number one reason why why these women call us. And then I step in, you know, I, I was abandoned as an infant back in 1973. And so my birth mom didn't have anybody to walk alongside her in her moment of crisis. And so for me, I, I find peace in being able to walk alongside these women and these men. And, and so I get involved when they reach out because I, I want to be their ear. I, I want to be their, their voice for them. I want them to trust me. I want, I want to have their back because most of these women are doing it in secret. And if I can just change um, how one woman feels judged or shamed and, and tell her that I'm so proud of her and that um, you know, if, if this was all she could do, this was enough, you know, it, it just, it, it's what we need to do more of. We need to praise the women who do safe options instead of criticizing them for placing their baby for adoption or placing their baby under the protection of the safe haven law. Um, there are those who say, look, this is not fair to the baby because yes, they may end up being put here and having a chance, but down the road, they won't know their health history. They won't know their family background. The United Nations has um, has raised concerns about this, that it might violate their human rights. What do you say to that? A baby found in a dumpster doesn't have any rights either, especially if they're dead. You know, we, we have to look at the alternative and the alternative is we're finding babies in dumpsters. Wouldn't we rather them be found in boxes or in safe arms under the protection of the safe haven law. And, you know, I'm, I'm 49 years old. Um, I've been to many doctors. I've never once needed my medical information. And I'm not saying that's, that's true for everyone. I'm, I'm not at all. But when I go into a doctor, they know that I have no history. So they run more tests because they don't have a starting point. And so uh, I think people are not looking at the bigger picture when they they start analyzing it like this, because if if it is a baby going into one of our boxes and not knowing their heritage or their ethnicity or going into a dumpster and being found dead, I don't think that child would choose anything except the box. So does it surprise you then when you hear people raise these issues? No, it doesn't really surprise me. Um, I mean, I I get criticized every single day. It, it, this is nothing new for me. Why? For what? I mean, uh, I know it, it's 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 crazy. It's absolutely crazy how much pushback we get. And all we're doing is saving babies in boxes and giving their parents an, an option. OK, so what's the pushback for? Uh, well, one um, 
one organization in America says that they want these women to walk into fire stations and hand their child to a person so that we can assess the parent for medical care. We, we don't disagree with that. But you, just because you tell them to walk in doesn't mean they're going to. It, you know, we, you have to be able to um, have an option for the, the parents that don't want to walk in and, and hand their child to a person. And, and so that, that's one of the arguments. And, and interesting enough, the safe haven law in America doesn't say that the parent has to bring the child to the firehouse. So if they're truly wanting to assess the mother for medical care, they might want to change their law to force the parent of the child to be the one that walks into the fire station or the hospital, because that's not true. You know, there's only three states in America that it, it's a parent that has to surrender the child. Um, but that's one that's one argument. Another argument is what if the box fails? Um, and we have so many fail safes on this box that even if one alarm was to fail, we have two more that would pick up. Um, if the box ever loses power, it sends a signal to 911 saying this box is without power and they can lock the front door so no mother uses it. We also just started putting cameras inside the box that'll just have a camera on the infant that's placed inside at all times. Another safety feature of the box that works off Wi-Fi. The other stuff works off cellular. So we're we're taking every avenue into consideration to make sure that these boxes never fail. Um, we have 141 active boxes. Uh, in America right now, and not one time have they failed. So um, we're we're pretty thankful that we've done our due diligence to make sure that um, we're we're keeping these babies safe and these moms um, safe as well. I, I know one of the other things that people have expressed concern about is you know once upon a time, um, you know back I, I was adopted back when I was uh, was born. It would have been around that time. There was. The idea that, you know what, if you're a single mother who's a teenager, you give your baby up. That's just, And they were coerced in a lot of ways. A lot of times they were coerced into giving that baby up. Some are saying this is just a modern outlet or a modern opportunity to coerce someone to give their baby up. It's now so easy and so anonymous. Just do it and you, you shouldn't keep the baby. Is is there a reasonable acceptance of that, that, that this, this could be coercion in a way to make it just too easy for people to give up their babies? I don't think so. I think that if we tried to do every what if, you know, what if this, what if that, what if then then we would have no safeguards for anything if a parent um, had an unplanned pregnancy. And so, uh, you know, if somebody is being co coerced, um, you know, that the law allows for 30 days in America. So if a parent places her baby in or, or man places a baby in a box today, uh, in 29 days, they can contact the Department of Child Services and ask for reunification. So if there was somebody being coerced, she has 30 days to come back, to contact the police department, to contact the Department of Child Services. Um, but we shouldn't look at this as, well, we're not going to give women a safe option to save their child simply because they might be being coerced. Um, we have to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is we're saving the life of a child. And this mother's life is going to go on. Now, if she is being coerced again, she has 30 days to come back um, to, to reunify with her child. If that's what she chooses to do, we have had one parent do that. And, uh, and we actually assisted them in doing that. Um, we're not about just saving babies in boxes and walking away. We're about saving moms as well. And, and so um, that case was a little bit more difficult uh, because drugs were involved. Um, but it was a very good outcome because this mother went through rehab 
and then was reunited with her son. And so we won two battles there, um, but it was a good outcome. Because of the anonymity of this, what happens if a baby is put into one of the baby boxes and the baby has been abused? And there's something now where you would have to go find the person because there's been some criminal act done on this child. Well, and and let's be clear, we should prosecute a parent who abuses their child. And if they try to hide this and place a baby in our box, which we have never had an abused child in our box yet, um, we we will look for her. We will look for her. Um, And it might be a little bit more difficult, but there's cameras on every, you know, uh, every intersection. You know, police have a way of tracking people down. I'm not trying to say that because it's not anonymous at a box or anything like that. I'm just saying that there are ways that we can find out who abused this child if this child was placed in our box abuse. Now, if a parent is is doing this for the right reasons and, and didn't abuse the child, um, they have our word. We will not look for them. It is. Uh, it's a fascinating story. The um, uh, you can look it up. As they say, safe haven baby boxes. Look it up online. Look up Monica Kelsey. She's got a website. Um, Monica M O N I C A Kelsey K E L S E Y dot com. If you want to learn more about this, Monica, really appreciate taking a few minutes. Thanks for this. Hey, you're very welcome. Thanks for having us. And just as we wrap here, uh, looking around for this because I wasn't sure about this. Apparently, in Canada, for, we have no safe haven law here in Canada, but apparently, there are three boxes two in saskatchewan one in edmonton never heard of this before again i don't know that there's any anywhere around here certainly um something that you know down the road maybe something for people around here to talk about for sure scott thompson isn't satisfied with an answer he'll delve into the issue until he is you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is in Hamilton today talking about the new dental plan. Uh, I'm sure you heard about this in the last budget that was released not that long ago, a few days ago. This is going to cover dental care for Canadians who qualify. Uh, The NDP leader joins me now. Mr. Singh, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. This is going to uh, provide this. This new plan is going to provide dental care to people who have different levels of family income, 90,000 for a family or 70 for no copay. Is this what you were hoping for? Is this is this sufficient in your opinion or did you want the net to be cast a little wider than this? This is what we had campaigned on. And this is uh, the first step. We call it the the down payment for a universal dental care program. But this is going to cover basically every Canadian that doesn't have coverage already. So the phase that we're doing this year is going to be for seniors and for kids 18 and under, as well as people living with disabilities. So that's millions of Canadians that are going to be able to go into a dentist's office, go into a hygienist's office, and their bill will be paid for with a national program. It's going to save families on average $1,200 per year. And it's going to save them from the pain of having to live with uh, an oral health condition that they can't afford to fix. So we're really proud. This is going to make a huge difference. And by the end of the program, so next year, it's going to cover everyone in the country that doesn't have coverage and earns less than 90000 So we're, we're really, really proud that this is going to make a difference. But we know there's a lot more that needs to be done. And that's why we're telling people, we made this happen. You know, liberals would not have done this but for us. And the conservatives make noise in the corner, but don't give people a break with any concrete programs. We're the ones delivering. And if you need more of this or want more of this, vote for New Democrats.
And, and I know that you had pushed for this. And thank you for explaining. I know you had pushed for this, what we're at right now. What And, and thank you for answering also what you're looking for longer term. But when you talk about universal for everyone, would that include down the road those who potentially have private care already or would they be excluded? So in terms of what we're fought, what we fought for is to just cover people who don't have coverage. We also included in this program to look at those that have some coverage, but it doesn't actually cover everything that they need to top them up. So really what we want to do is to make sure that there is a, a baseline of dental care coverage in our country for everyone. So they can get the care they need. And, and then we can look to other steps to expand it even further. But right now this is already and a historic expansion. We've not seen an expansion of our healthcare system since it's come in, really. And we've really um, pushed the envelope here and and brought in something that's never been done before. So we're we're proud of that. The so there are people I'm sure who are very much in agreement with this and nodding their heads and saying that's terrific. One of the challenges then becomes the implementation of this. Um, the head of the British Columbia Dental Association was talking to the Vancouver Sun when this was announced as part of the budget. He says, Lay, this is great. I applaud this. But we don't have in this country or this province nearly enough dental workers, hygienists, dentists, everybody to handle the millions of people potentially who are going to fall into this. How do we make this work if we say you can get treatment, but we don't have people to give you that kind of treatment yet? So that's going to be another uh, part of the the plan and what we need to do to to ramp up the training. So I've been doing some touring of of dental schools, hygienists, uh, dental hygienist schools, and and talking to those faculties about the increased demand that's going to be out there. And one of the missing gaps that that we are hoping to fulfill is that there are a lot of dental hygienists that don't work full-time hours because they have to piece together a schedule working at some clinics here a couple hours, another uh, some hours there. What we're hoping for hygienists, a lot of dental care needs to be preventative, which is really important. So we've included in the program that an independent hygienist can bill this dental care program directly. So for a lot of the cleaning and the preventative work, hygienists are the ones that provide that. And we want to make sure that they're being fully utilized. And that's going to actually end up saving us money in the long term. People are going to be healthier. Their teeth are going to be healthier. And they can get out to places where often dentists won't be able to go to. So they can do mobile clinics. They can go to long-term care homes. And so we're hoping that's going to be a big part of the solution. And one of the things he said, and again, he generally applauded the platform, but he said his concern now is in the meantime, people who may have dental issues now that they know they have treatment will go to emergency rooms and overburden the medical system that we all know we've talked about forever now has been overburdened. Is that a concern of yours as well? Well, that's one of the things we're hoping that this program will also alleviate some of the pressures on our already overburdened healthcare system. A lot of people end up going into the emergency room because they've got pain in their mouth, pain that's unbearable, and they go there and they get treatment, but that doesn't really fix the problem. They get maybe a, a painkiller. And so we're hoping with this dental care program, people will actually be able to fix the problem. If they've got uh, pain because of a root canal issue or something that can be solved with a root canal, they can get that done. If they need an extraction, that can happen for seniors that need better dentures or access to better um, devices for their mouths. They can get those as well. And we're going to have a healthier population that doesn't need to end up in the emergency room because they, they don't get the dental care or the oral care that they need. So we're hoping that this is actually going to find its way to not just preventing, but lessening some of the burden on our healthcare system because people will get care that they need. 
You mentioned a moment ago preventative to try and stop some of this from happening. Now, I mean, I don't know what your dentist asks you to do, but many will say you should come in for two cleanings a year or two cleanings and two checkups or whatever else. With this new plan, is there a minimum acceptable level of treatment? Can someone say I deserve and I should be able to go in for four cleanings a year under this plan? And again, going back to the shortage of workers or or do we simply say we will do what we can and yeah, come in once a year and we'll look after you. Is there a baseline? Yeah, we're looking at guidelines around what's what's the uh, best uh, best dental care or oral health care recommendations and trying to ensure that our program will cover those guidelines. So what is the recommended care that people should receive to be healthy? That's what we're following. We also are working into the program to cover the the fees of hygienists and dentists at a sufficient level so that the program will actually be used. What we heard from a lot of people was there's some programs being offered by provinces, but they only cover 40% of the cost. And that means the dentists or hygienists are having to operate at a loss to deliver that care. And that's not really sustainable and it's not going to result in enough of a uptake of the program. So those are some of the things that we're very, paying really close attention to in the implementation. We're actually heavily involved in making sure the liberals deliver a program that works. We're actually meeting with the minister regularly and discussing these issues to make sure that because this is going to have the new Democrat name on it, this is a program we fought for. We forced to be in the in the budget. We forced in the agreement. So our name is going to be associated with this program and and proudly so. So we're very vested in making sure it works properly. And we've seen that this government hasn't done the best job of delivering uh, programs in the past. So we're learning from programs that work and ones that don't work. And we're going to be very vigilant to make sure this is one that delivers exactly what we expect it to. We have to only a 30 seconds here. So sorry for a short time to answer this one. But are dentists mandated to accept patients in their area? If, if a dentist says, I'm already full, and yet the person who now is covered by this program lives in that area, can the dentist say, I'm sorry, I can't take you. You have to go look elsewhere. Or must they take a new patient? Uh, we, there's no provision for mandates. We've been told from by dentists and hygienists that if the, the coverage of their fees is sufficient, they will take the patient. So uh, we're going to do that. And we also have a rural and remote fund that we've uh, fought to include that'll help access in those communities that have less coverage. That is NDP federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who is in town today uh, talking about this. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes with us. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. And I came upon a very interesting, I thought it was a really interesting tweet uh, that was uh, put out this morning, 9.38 a.m. this morning. Let me read it. It's from, it was the the person who tweeted it was the biking lawyer. Uh, We'll talk to him in just a second. Here's the tweet. Hamilton police ticketed a 16-year-old cyclist for riding on a sidewalk this weekend while in hospital for injuries after being hit by a driver. The cyclist didn't feel safe riding on the road. This could have been a compassionate teaching moment was the driver charged for hitting him. It is a, it is a unique tweet. It's a unique story. I want to bring in the man who is the biking lawyer. His name is Dave Shelnut, who joins us now. Dave, how are you? Hey, Scott. I'm good. Yourself? I am excellent. I hope you can um, explain. I'm not quite sure I understand what the scenario was here. Police ticketed a 16-year-old cyclist for riding on a sidewalk while in hospital for injuries after being hit by a driver. Uh, Was he in the hospital? Did the police show up at the hospital with a ticket? So what happened, Scott, is the young man was riding along the sidewalk on King out by Quigley and uh, entered the crosswalk um, at the intersection on his bicycle and was hit there. 
Uh, as a result, he was injured and taken to the hospital. And uh, police uh, went out of their way uh, to head on down to the hospital, too, and hand the young man a ticket. Okay, so uh, I got a lot of questions about this. Um, when we say, and only because I have no idea about this story, when we say that he was hit in the intersection, uh, semantics are important. Was he hit by the car or did he run into the car that perhaps was making a turn? Well, our position is that the car turned into him um, while he was in the crosswalk. Okay, because this is one of those ones, and, and I, I know that you, you're the biking lawyer, so I, I know where your passion on this one lies, and I know you're, you're working for this. I, I, I just, I wonder about these, because it is against the law, technically, to do this. So, where, what is the case here? What, what is the defense? And I know you're going to have one. Um, it, it, I read the bylaw that he was charged with, which is you're not allowed to ride on the sidewalk. So, explain where the defense would be for this or why he shouldn't per se uh, necessarily have been charged well I, I mean we'll we'll save our defense for the uh the the case that we're going to run pro bono but there's a lot of errors on that ticket um it, what what it really comes down to is is a prosecutor looking at this thing and saying listen does a young man um who suffered injury as a result of this collision uh deserve to be slapped with a fine as well um you know there's 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 uh, you, you can't just drive into an intersection um, and and hit someone in it if they're cycling. And that's against the law, but you can't just hit people. So where's the other, where's the culpability on the driver here? Were they being inattentive um, and didn't see this person uh, in the intersection when they were there to be seen? Uh, so those are all kind of things we're going to be raising. Uh, our friend Mark from Cycle Hamilton went down this afternoon to that very intersection and saw three cars run a red light while he sat down there just checking it out. Uh, we got a real problem on our hands here uh, in terms of road safety, and it certainly isn't 16-year-olds on sidewalks. Mm. And, and look, I, I suspect that there probably are people who are nodding when uh, when you're saying this. What what should police do? And, you know, it's a, it's a loaded question, but when someone is riding on the sidewalk, should police be getting involved and saying we're going to give a ticket for something like that? I mean, I, I think that uh, our our police are always saying that they're they're under budget. So perhaps um, you know minor road safety stuff like this should be done through community education campaigns. You know, from the province to the municipal uh, to municipal governments, there ought to be real leadership on explaining the rules of the road to people, be it drivers, um, pedestrians, or, or cyclists, of course, with a focus on drivers because they cause the most harm. Uh, they ought to be out there explaining, we got all these new bike lanes in the city of Hamilton. Has any anybody taken a good crack at explaining that to motorists? Um, I can understand uh, that mistakes are made uh, when you've got uh, varying infrastructure across the city that hasn't been explained and just kind of pops up. I, I don't think this is an enforcement issue. I think it's a, a, a you know, a collective safety and public education. And I, I think that most people, whether they are cyclists or not, I, I truly believe that most people would say if a car driver or someone who's driving a motor vehicle is inattentive or makes a mistake or does something careless and hits a cyclist, they should be fined, charged, whatever. I, I don't think there's too many people that would argue against that. I think even drivers would generally say that. I guess the question is for a lot of people, should there be more of a crackdown on bicyclists 
who do something that maybe is out in violation of the law to make the road safer by also encouraging them to pay more attention? I think all of our road safety efforts, Scott, should be data-based. And so whoever causes the most harm, cost on our communities, our hospitals, our road infrastructure, um, et cetera, et cetera, that's where we should focus resources at all times. Um, you know, when we de- when we have ridden the road of people who text when they drive or, or run red lights uh, and all these things, when we've sorted all that stuff out, the things that really harm people and cause serious injury, sure, we can turn to bikes at that point. Yeah, and I think that's a valid point uh, that, that, you know, we, we, you know, the thing about texting when you're driving or whatever. I mean, sure, with that, those are things that we absolutely should have and, and are working to crack down. That's something that we're trying to get rid of. But I'm wondering if it's a fair statement to say that, you know, because cyclists are the victims when a car is involved, that then no enforcement should be done on cyclists who also may in some ways lead to some of these accidents or be part of the leading to the accidents or, or you know, as I say, this one, he's charged with riding on a sidewalk. It's a, it's a really interesting one. But if he had hit a person, we would say, well, why was he riding on the sidewalk? Like th- this is, it's such a tricky thing that we're facing here about who to enforce and what to enforce. Yeah. And, and you, you really want to be careful with victim blaming and, and telling, you know, um, victims that they should be responsible in some way for for their injuries and injustice. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is a pedestrian wasn't hit here. Um, and, and that I think you'll find uh, from the data happens pretty infrequently, um, in, at least in terms of um, cyclists hitting pedestrians. In Hamilton last year, by June, we had 11 pedestrians killed by motorists killed. Um, you know, that's that's where the real problem lies here, Scott. It is uh, it is absolutely a really interesting one, and, and we'll uh, we'll be trying to follow this one uh, for sure because this story it sounds very very unusual. David Shelnut, um, the bike, the bicycle, the biking lawyer. Let me get it right so people people can f- find you on the web and find you on on Twitter. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing Scott, this. Scott, thanks so much. It is look that that is a that is a really fascinating story, which we will try and follow this one a bit because um, I can tell you that I have no tolerance, no tolerance for people who would drive cars in a reckless way that would be endangering cyclists. I think you are, I mean, we know you are supposed to be responsible if you're driving a car. You are driving a loaded bullet if you're in behind the wheel of a car. And so in no way do I believe that somehow we should be cutting a break to someone who is doing something that puts cyclists or pedestrians at risk because they're behind the wheel? I, 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 I do, however, and I have had enough in recent months, times seeing some cyclists doing some things that caught my eye as well, that I'm not entirely sure I'm going to agree to say cyclists are never in any way at fault. I don't know in this particular case, no idea in this particular case. I will take, you know, that that's Dave's position. And, and so there we go. It, 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 the point is it becomes a very, very complicated scenario because we don't want cyclists hurt, but I don't believe that in every single case, not even talking about this one, I don't believe in every single case that it's always entirely 100% 
innocence on the part of cyclists. But as I say, we will see. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating one. It really is. And of course, these complicated ones always make the most interesting stories to be looking into. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Next Monday, so just a few days from now, if you head down to the JL Greitmeyer Arena in Dundas, that's the one on Market Street, the one that was just redone. Took a while, but it's done and it looks very nice. Uh, The Allen Cup is going to be played out there, which is the championship of senior hockey in this country. It has been here before. But it's taken a while to get it back. Let me bring Don Robertson in. He is uh, the man behind the Dundas Real McCoys. He is hosting this event. Sir, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I am well. I say it's taken a while for this one to come back. I think, what was it, three times or four times you were supposed to be host, ho- uh, hosting? And every time you did, uh, COVID somehow got in the way. Yeah, this is, uh, we were to do it in 2020, and, and we were going to co-host it. The plans were in place with uh, the then Hamilton Steelhawks. And three weeks before the event, the Vice President of Hockey Canada called me, Dean McIntosh, and said, Don, we're announcing in 15 weeks we're shutting all hockey down across Canada. And there it stayed. And uh, we thought maybe last year, and we couldn't get it organized. And this year, the Ontario Hockey Association uh, will be running the event, not Hockey Canada, which is kind of a throwback to the way it used to be. And we'll be running a, a four-team event like we did in 2003. And so, yeah, we're back. Um, Clarenville, Newfoundland will be coming in. Who the Dundas Real McCoys beat it in, beat in double overtime in 2014 to win the Allen Cup. And Innisfil Eagles are coming in from Alberta. And the Hamilton Steelers, who are uh, Robertson Cup champions, defeating us. And uh, it's going to be a good event. So... We'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. Normally, we have 18-month runway to get ready. And we were awarded the event officially in February 19th. So, fortunately, Scott, we've, we've got about one month's work to do with our board. And luckily, we have uh, about four days to do it so we can get it all done. Yeah, it's and what is different this time? This is um, it's a Challenge Cup this time as opposed to a Champions Cup. This this actually is probably a lot closer to the origins of the Stanley Cup than we've seen in a long, long time. Because the, the Stanley Cup used to be a Challenge Cup. Uh, things have changed, but it, it's it's a real throwback the way you're doing it. Well, it is, and that's because Hockey Canada were running the event, they, and they didn't have their hands on the levers. They wanted it to be referred to as a challenge event and said to me, do you have a problem with that? And I responded and said, I thought it was all, it's always been a challenge cup, right? Like I don't see any difference other than the language that we're using. Um, You know, the Stanley cup, as you know, the historic value of it, there could be two Stanley cup winners in one year, you know, the Dundas real McCoys win it. And the, uh, um, Ottawa Silver 7 want to play and you'll lose it. I mean, you might only add it for a month. So we don't see any real significance uh, in the difference of it because it's always been a challenge cup, but now we're calling it that. So how is I this? Picked up, I picked up the, uh, uh, the Allen Cup Sunday from Phil Pritchard and from the Hall of Fame, and it is now in the Dundas Arena. So we have our paws on it. 
How is this? So you mentioned the fact that you've had very, very little time to put this together, relatively speaking. How then is this going to work? I mean, how, how do you sell tickets? How do you get the word? I mean, you're getting the word out here, I know, in other places. But I mean, it's, it seems like it would be an immense challenge to try and make this thing work with almost no time to prepare. Well, I, you know, as you know, I, I, I run a couple of businesses. And in none of them do I employ hope as a strategy. <laughs> but uh, we're hoping and praying that um, there's enough um, interest in hockey. Uh, um, I'm sad the Bulldogs are out, but they have a lot of fans. And uh, the challenge is, is can, can we get the information in front of enough people in a short period of time? Setting this thing up and trying to market it is has been like drinking water from a fire hose. So, uh, for the first time in many years, we're employing hope as a strategy and hope that the community of Hamilton and surrounding area and our loyal fans in Dundas, the only big asset that we have that few other hockey teams at the senior level in the Commonwealth possess, is we have a championship executive. We have the most dedicated 25 volunteer executive members on the planet, and they will make this thing sparkle on their own. They are just a great group. We're meeting tomorrow night. We'll stuff 250 bags for the participants, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna make the thing sparkle. Um, and we hope that the people respond. And I hate using that strategy, but it was really important, Scott, that we run an Allen Cup this year. Because if it went by another year and then it starts to be forgotten and uh, if there's a price to be paid for that, then then I'm prepared to pay that price because it's that important. It's the world's oldest national hockey championship and it can't be left. And we're not going to let it die and we're going to put on a great show starting Monday when we play in this for Eagles at 7.30 and the Hamilton Steelers will play Clarenville Newfoundland at 3.30 in the afternoon. We'll have a great opening ceremony. We've got a great event planned. So we have two games Monday, two games Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at 7.30, and the Allen Cup Championship will be played Saturday, probably in the afternoon, but the time is to be determined. Mm. And, you know, 50% chance there'll be a local team playing in that championship game, which is, uh, you know, which is a good thing. It's a good draw. Uh, if people want tickets or want to find out more about it, where do they do that? Go to our Facebook and our Twitter page. We're just setting up now. I think we're going to, be able to sell tickets at the arena on Saturday afternoon. Uh, we're not sophisticated enough to let people buy them online, but, uh, but we do take cash and credit cards now. So if you look at our social media, we'll be able to drive you to the right place. Probably uh, Saturday afternoon at JL Greitmeyer. That is the Allen Cup, as I say, as Don says, at the JL Greitmeyer Arena in downtown Dundas all next week. Don, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for letting us have the time. Thanks, Scott. That is, uh, that is our time. That is all the time we got. It's time to get outside. It's still 25 out. It's still beautiful. It's still, we still have time to take these shorts for a test drive. Uh, thank you to Will for uh, lining everything up. Other Will for keeping us on the air. Thank you to all of our guests today. Every one of them. Fantastic stuff. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Scott Thompson is going to be back in this spot tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Unless, unless he is so deeply sunburned from his afternoon in his leopard skin thong out in the backyard, in which case his body cannot bend, in which case, <laughs> yeah, he'll be back. Maybe a little pink, but he'll be back. 
Anyway, thanks for listening. Have a great night. Talk to you soon. And boom goes the dynamite. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.